Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of QIC's QPod Investor Podcast. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director of Global Business Development at QIC. Last week on Monday, on Monday the 20th, we saw announcements hit the press around oil experiencing negative pricing. As a manager who has invested in managed oil financial contracts now for a number of years, we thought this was a great opportunity for us to unpack this headline grabbing news and understand this further from an institutional investor's point of view. What are the supply demand dynamics in oil and how can big institutional funds look to invest in this area of the financial markets? Today, I'm joined by Robert Swan, who is the head of risk premia and equities at QIC. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, Craig. Uh, maybe I can start by asking you first, Robert, with a title like that, what is your experience in oils and in oil contracts? And uh, perhaps you can give us a bit of an understanding of what you've done with regards to these financial contracts in your career. Yeah, sure. So I guess over the past uh, 11 or so years I've been working at QIC, I've sort of overseen quite a few different types of oil and commodity exposures. So that ranges from the sort of long only exposures that we had in our balance funds, which was looking to provide inflation protection to the portfolio through to long short strategies, which are really trying to extract factors such as carry. And then finally, we also run um, a volatility risk premium strategy, which is trying to extract the difference between implied volatility and realized volatility, uh, also in the oil market, amongst other commodities. Thanks for that, Robert. So last Tuesday morning, we all woke up in Australia to headline grabbing news of oil prices plummeting to negative territory for the first time in history. Can you talk us through what that actually meant for you as a, a person who understands the oil markets well and perhaps some of the causes that uh, led to that negative pricing? Yeah, sure, Craig. I mean, when we woke up on Tuesday morning to see that the WTI futures contract had settled at minus 37.63, I mean, it's, it's unsurprising that, that sort of makes global news. I think what's really important to start with is we need to talk about what that price actually represents and particularly the WTI May futures contract, which is a physically settled future, which actually expired or stopped trading the following day on the 21st. So what that means is that the holder of that contract at expiry or at the final trade date on the 21st is legally required to take delivery of physical oil. So if someone is um, holding that contract who hasn't actually made plans to take delivery from that, they're really forced to have to close that position down and really accept whatever price that someone's willing to take that off their hands. Hence, you can see prices uh, plummet as we sort of did. Interesting. So there's a couple of themes here. The first one is you really highlight WTI. So I might get you to give us a bit more understanding. Are there other contracts uh, that might be sitting around that particular WI contract? And secondly, did they go negative? Yeah, sure. So I guess WTI is probably one of the most famous ones in terms of it's a US-based contract with delivery to Cushing, Oklahoma, which is an inland location in the US. Uh, more broadly, uh, the Brent futures contract, which is actually a North Sea oil contract, it represents about two thirds of the uh, oil universes reference pricing and so it unlike the WTI contract it didn't go anywhere near negative uh, which really represents that this pricing uh, anomaly was very much focused within the US market. So one of the other pieces of news we've been getting a lot of insight into lately is the decision process for OPEC 
um, this idea of um, some disputes or some friction between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Were they playing a role in this particular oil pricing? And I suppose with regards to Brent versus WTI, you know, have they had an impact on those particular contracts? Sure. I mean, it's best to think about oil, I think, in in a supply and demand dynamic sort of sense, um, whether or not which actor is sort of uh, responsible for pricing movements is obviously very hard to disentangle. But I mean, if we look, if we talk about the supply side of the market, firstly, uh, if you look back since sort of 2000, from sort of October 2016, we've really seen global supply being pretty consistent at around about 80 million barrels per day. What we have seen, however, is that there's been a real move towards the US in terms of its production has been ever increasing. And on the other side, we've seen OPEC sort of dropping to sort of keep that level at around about that 80 million barrels a day. What we've seen more recently is OPEC plus, which is OPEC plus Russia, have come out uh, with reductions of that will come into effect in May of around 10 million barrels a day, which is pretty considerable drop. However, if we put that against the backdrop of what we're seeing on the demand side, we've actually seen demand fall about 30% uh, as a result of the coronavirus. And so it would indicate that we probably need to see significantly more production cuts in order to see prices stabilize. Robert, I, re I really wanna focus a little bit more around how you know, nationally governments are responding. And we talked before about OPEC plus and OPEC, um, but perhaps we can just quickly focus on, for example, the US and how they've used this opportunity to increase their strategic supply volumes. And what does this mean when it comes to pricing and does OPEC still hold the cards, for example? Well, I think everyone would have seen the news or the tweets around Donald Trump's support for uh, the US energy industry, and particularly that he's going to fill the strategic reserve to the brim. I think what we've also seen is the actual the industry responding to these, um, to the production or the oversupply. And so what we've actually seen is a reduction in rig counts by about 40% since the pre-corona limit, uh, pre-corona levels, which is really, uh, I guess, showing that the economics is really flowing through into um, decision-making. I think the big concern for the US government is actually going to be supporting the jobs that are associated with that energy industry. And so I think that's where you're going to see a lot of the support going forward. So if the coronavirus is having a, an impact on the demand side, and you've also got supply shocks with regards to OPEC plus and OPEC and new entrants or emerging entrants in the oil supply market, what are the opportunities for investors here? You know, can they be looking at the oil markets as a source? And what does oil currently do with regards to playing a role inside a typical balanced portfolio? From a balanced fund perspective, I think you can probably start by looking at, well, what's in your equity portfolio? And that particularly within the MSCI world, uh, you have around about a 3.5% exposure to the energy sector. Um, then there's probably also additional implicit exposures through things like the banks and through services that are provided to the, that I guess not directly to the energy, but also supporting all the uh, workers that work within the energy complex. And then finally, you also look at probably in the credit side of the portfolio as well. So whether that be uh, credit, it could be alternative debt, it could be distressed debt. Uh, there's definitely been 
uh, a lot of um, issuance that are coming from the uh, energy and energy services sector, which clients may have exposure to. So if you're looking at it from, I suppose, the second category, um, what are the kind of liquidity and what are the risks that we should be aware of with those particular contracts, Robert? And, and we will touch on the credit and, and equity side in a moment, but just to focus more on those oil uh, contracts or, or energy contracts. So I guess most people who, unless they're going to go out and buy an oil tanker, um, most people or most institutional clients will actually get direct oil or energy exposure through futures or through products that are trading futures. So the United States Oil Fund, for example, is buying uh, WTI futures. Most investment bank swaps that you could get exposure to commodities such as the GSCI, which is an index that has uh, a large exposure to energy as well as other commodities. These are all based on essentially futures pricing. And so one of the things that people have to do in terms of managing that futures exposure is they need to roll. And so what that actually exposes the client to is it exposes them to essentially the carry in the term structure. And so that's probably one thing that would be often forgotten in terms of if you are trying to buy relatively cheap oil, there is a carry associated with uh, buying those futures. And if the market, if the term structure remains unchanged, you will essentially roll down that term structure and the price will fall in line with what that term structure is already currently pricing in. Just to stay on that topic for a little bit more, um, if you're an institutional investor, we know at the moment that uh, liquidity is really important, um, that a number of our um, uh, institutional uh, market participants are holding considerable amounts of cash. They're also looking for opportunities in the future. Does the current pricing of oil represent a cheap play, an opportunistic play for an institutional client? And what are some of the things I should be aware of, particularly as you go up further along the curve with regards to the structure of the pricing? I think you really need to remember that the actual market does price in some sort of mean reversion. So if you look uh, in terms of the WTI uh, forward curve, it prices out all the way to 2030. And so if we actually look at the pricing of WTI out to that sort of point, we're looking at reverting all the way back to around about $50 a barrel. So in terms of taking an opportunistic play, you really need to think about, well, at what point is the market going to revert to your price that you have within, like, I guess, your reversion price and be comparing that to what's actually being priced in the market? Because these really low prices that we're actually seeing in the headlines are actually typically or are typically the uh, front futures contract. And that's really talking about a forecast over the next month or so. Anything past a year, a year is at a significantly higher price than what you're actually seeing in the headlines. And so that leads to the final question with regards to these uh, energy contracts, Robert. And that is, if you aren't comfortable then with taking that sort of specula speculatory risk, what other ways can you use those contracts to try and sort of unlock some premium in the market? Yeah, uh, so we've historically, and this is something that we've been doing at QIC since um, 2008, is actually trying to extract factors out of the commodity markets. And typically one of the, the first factors that you look for is carry a carry strategy. So essentially what that's doing is the opposite of being uh, long uh, energy futures 
and that's really selling these inflated or these higher uh, futures prices and betting on the curve staying the same and essentially rolling down the term structure. Now that does come with risks in terms of we do see a reversion uh, in prices that will obviously be a negative for this strategy. But historically, it has been quite a, an attractive strategy uh, to have in your portfolio. I know I said the last question was the final one, Robert, but could I please bring you back to the original area of where an investor can get access to these market exposures? You mentioned equities and credit. Uh, could we delve a little deeper here and understand how we can use those asset classes to access the energy complex? Craig, I think just in terms of what's the best way to access the oil story, I think my comments around equities and around credit is just something to be careful of in terms of how much risk you're allocating to this particular uh, view. So I think when you are looking at adding or taking away uh, energy exposure, I think you just need to be cognizant of how much exposure you may have in the rest of your portfolio when you're actually coming up and sizing the risk of this particular trade. Excellent. Thanks, Robert, for your time today and for shedding more light on this recent market headline. One of the takeaways for me is that I wasn't easily going to get paid to buy that WTI oil contract last, last week unless I chose to take a more volatile front end to the curve position. Importantly, you highlighted that the financial instruments attributable to the oil markets are continuing to operate in a normal, rational way along the pricing curve, which reflects the various supply and dynamics at play. It also does highlight an opportunity for investors to see alternate ways to bring diversification into their portfolio and have an awareness of the nuances to how they are accessed. We appreciate you listening to our podcast and we hope you can join our next one. Have a wonderful day.